0: What is our vision for space? It's obviously promoting prosperity and freedom of movement and extending our Western values. Most of the jobs that are gonna exist in 10 years don't exist today, so how do you build skill sets for that? You guys are at the peak of your creativity. You need to be utilizing that. You are a valuable asset to creating and innovating in this country and in this world.
1: Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's mad scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanispert of the Combat Capabilities Development Command's Armament Center within the Army Futures Command, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of MAD Scientist. MAD Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMADSci, or subscribe to the blog, the MAD Scientist Laboratory, at MadSciBlog.Tradoc.Army.Mil. On today's episode, Luke will be talking with Kara Koonsman, lead futurist for strategic foresight for the Center for Space Policy and Strategy at the Aerospace Corporation. Kara will be discussing strategic foresight, the future of space research, and advice for the next generation of engineers. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started.
2: Kara, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: So, Kara, you're the lead futurist uh, for strategic foresight at the Center for Space Policy and Strategy over at the Aerospace Corporation. So for our audience, can you tell them what is your job all about? What's your focus?
0: Great. Thanks. Um, So I'm really trying to transform the future mindset of the space enterprise. We're using um, strategic foresight practices. Um, which are really just discipline approaches and methodologies to think about possibilities of the future so that we can make better decisions today, Um, even under great uncertainty, which obviously, you know, space is moving into a very complex environment, and so we need these tools and methods um, to pave out possibilities of the future. We're also looking at creating an abundant, secure, bustling, sustainable space economy, and we need these kinds of thinking and approaches um, to really um, think things through and um, maximize the potential of space itself and. The great part of having this being hosted at Aerospace is I basically have 4,000 engineers that I can phone a friend, <laughs> yeah. right? They're technical experts in all sorts of different areas. And it's actually really magical when you can get a diverse set of them in a room and run through some of these foresighting activities together. And it's just, it's such an exciting time because there's a lot going on in space. And then I have this great um, backplane to kind of help hone in and get really deep and broad um, as we're trying to do our strategic foresighting activities. So the other thing, uh, that we have coming up, which I'm really excited about, is in addition to all the customer activities we've been supporting, we are getting ready to roll out a futures map. um, Looking at the future um, aspects of the space enterprise, we have identified about seven key converging themes, and we're kind of giving a little nod to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Space Galaxy. (laughs) And um, so I'm really excited about that. That'll be published out through our Center for Space Policy website um, later this spring. And we're also getting ready um, to get uh, going a strategic foresight series paper on uh, what it means to do strategic foresight for the space enterprise, how it can help everybody, um, and how we need to start dreaming about possibilities of the future and other than the hiccup with this COVID-19 we were going to be debuting our Artifacts of the Future uh, exhibit at Space Symposium but we might have to uh, find another venue because I I know that that people are talking about that (laughs) but you know it's like it's so telling because strategic foresight practitioners usually aren't valued right we're considered the mad scientists until things like this happen so so we should be embracing the chaos um, because I think a lot of the strategic planning and efforts that we have in identifying possibilities and, and the focus really is on being prepared, not predicting, because if you're if you're trying to predict, Amy Webb sent a great email out today, she's a she's a world renowned futurist. You're doing you're in the wrong business. We can't predict these things, but we can prepare. And if we had just a little bit more foresight, it can help alleviate some of this pain and tensions that we're feeling in everyday society, all the way from I really can't go buy toilet paper because the shelves are empty. Um, but if I had the foresight, right, <laughs> maybe I wouldn't have that problem
2: uh you know you kind of alluded to earlier and I, I think this is a great point is that you have a great background as an engineer so being an engineer, how does that help your thinking about the future?
0: Yeah, you know, engineering really prepared me for, I would say, anything. So when I, you know, kind of walking back, right, I've always been kind of a renaissance woman. Like, I've really been interested in both right brain and left brain activities. I was on the math team and the dance team in high school. Um, I continued to dance in college. Um, And I was really having a hard time trying to figure out, like, what do I go get a degree in? Um, And it wasn't until well, so my, my dad was an engineer, my brother's an engineer, and my dad just convinced me. If you get an engineering foundation, you can literally go do anything you want. Um, so, so I took his advice and went to Purdue, and honestly, it was, it was a great decision, great foundation. But the first couple of years, to be, to be honest, like I was having a hard time understanding the relevance of what I was learning, because they weren't tying it to real world problems. Now I know curriculums are getting much better now about doing, doing that and weaving in projects with companies like right away, um, but it wasn't until I did undergraduate research that I really made that connection of like, I am actually using all of this, right, to, to solve um, real world problems. And I think that, that connection for me sparked just more of a passion of like, lifelong learning. And I realized, I like to solve problems. I don't like to study. I like to solve problems. Um, And so I decided I liked it so much, I I stayed for my master's and got my master's in air and Astro Engineering. Um, And then I've kind of just been on this crazy um, journey of exciting adventures ever since. Every job I've had has been very, very different. I've done a lot of different things. Um, But the one thing has been, does this interest me intellectually? And do I feel like I can contribute um, to, to solving the hardest problems in this industry? one of the things that I found kind of stumbling into the foresighting world a few years ago um, was that a lot of the folks have either anthropology or social science backgrounds, which has been really valuable for me because I think a lot of scientists and engineers kind of poo-poo the fact that there's not quantitative, hard, single-point <laughs> right, um, calculations behind some things. But that's not how life works. Life is uncertain. And so I really appreciated having this scientific rigor of trying to distill and and the problem set down into little bite-sized pieces and doing the analytics on it, but also having the appreciation using foresight to understand how to think through problems that we can't quantify. And I think uh, having that two-mind framing of these problems has really given me an opportunity to understand where everybody's coming from when we have these discussions and helping make transformation rather than people arguing in their own languages. So it's been very, very valuable. And to be honest, I've always let my heart lead me. <laughs> um, I know that's not what a lot of engineers do, but I let my heart lead me into interesting problem sets. And I think that's that's really a key um, piece of advice I'd have is like find a problem set you really like and don't let a degree find you, don't let your company define you. There are interesting problem sets and you need to step up and kind of round out perspectives that you may not have in order to solve those.
2: You know, so something that's interesting in terms of gaining perspective and and analyzing the future is you've been dealing in the space aspects. So there's, there's a lot to that. We've been fighting counterinsurgency, counterterrorism for almost two decades. And while we were doing that, our strategic competitors, like China, Russia, they've been heavily investing in these space-based capabilities. So, how do we keep pace with them?
0: It's a really good question, and I think we're getting there in terms of how we approach the problem, especially since things aren't so black and white anymore, right? Kind of, you know, post-Cold War era is—it's very different now. It's—it's it's gray zone warfare, and it's hard living in that world and making budget decisions and figuring out what to do in that new world order. But I—I I, I think, regardless, right, we all kind of understand. Speed is going to be our new security, but we all need to go faster, right, in every aspect. We need to cut the red tape and bureaucratic processes. We need to leverage commercial and partner as much as possible. We need to develop modularized systems with the intent of upgrading and having you know, fast tech refresh. A lot of the things I'm saying aren't necessarily just applied to space itself it's for everything and I think that's something I'm finding myself especially is the you know I I support an FFRDC for the space enterprise a lot of our discussions are not space discussions because we are part of the enterprise and this is about whole of picture networks of like how are we getting the mission done Um, so I think that kind of value system is going to hold true no matter what another interesting kind of read on this topic, I, th- I think it's worth pointing out, is this question of keeping pace. Um, there's like a really interesting quote I love from White Earp, which is, you know, fast is fine, but accuracy is everything. In a gunfight, you need to take your time in a hurry, right? So let's say we get to at pace. Then what? I think it's a really interesting question for us all to think about, then what? Um, in a world, especially as we're talking about, right, you guys talk about convergence of AI and autonomous systems a lot on your show, what does that look like? And how important is data efficacy? And where do you need your data? And is that coming from space? Is it not coming from space? Can that ebb and flow? Who's making the, you know, who's calling the shots? I think all of those questions are really important for us to, to start to grapple with. And the one thing that really irks me, and I would say especially on the space side, is when we say keeping at pace, there's a sense of reactionary tendencies in that question. I think it's more about, you know how do we stop letting others drive our own narrative? And how do we develop our own vision and just go do that? What is our vision for space? It's obviously promoting prosperity and freedom of movement and extending our Western values. And how do we do that? How do we do that whole of government, whole of people, um, with our partners, our allies, I think that's a really important aspect as well, not just go faster.
2: How, how much do you worry or how much do you think about weaponization of space, both by um, you know our adversaries um, or, or maybe even other state actors that we're not considering as adversaries?
0: Well, I'll probably be unpopular in my response, but to be honest, I don't really worry that much about it um, in the sense that space is really just an extension of whatever happens here on Earth. So I worry about weaponization, period, right? (laughs) Um, And yes, space is important. It's becoming increasingly important and interconnected, just as all the other domains. And so um, from a systems-of-systems perspective, I mean, there's vulnerabilities um, left and right, and that does worry me a lot. Um, But I think, you know, to expect (laughs) humankind to just... Stop, you know, projecting conflict once they hit 500 kilometers is absolutely absurd. I mean, as much as I hope and pray for peaceful outer space, I think we need to be much more pragmatic telling us that conflict is just part of human nature and that's going to be part of the human story as we expand. So we need to be prepared for that. And I think... Um, You know, the recent movement of the U.S. to stand up our Space Force is really just an answer in trying to help move forward, securing the peace and use of space. But we need to be having much more holistic dialogue, I think, across the enterprise. What is it really going to take to secure the peace and promote values of liberty, prosperity, and freedom as we expand? Um, and how are we gonna do that in a way that is sustainable?
2: You know, Aer- Aerospace Corporation as, a, as an FFRDC has this interesting relationship between private industry and academia and the government. Um, so from that vantage point, thinking about it and, and what you said before about you know, cutting that red tape and accelerating and getting faster, what can the DOD do to be a better partner with industry? How do, how do we help the private sector help us?
0: You no, know, this is like a really great question, and it's, it's so true. I mean, I have, I think, the privilege and the peril of, of sitting and being in the middle of it all. And, you know, aerospace really is a unique organization. Just having this nonprofit, objective, technical backplane that will tell you from a technically, you know, backed place what is and is not possible. What you should do. Give you your, you know, area of options. And then, of course, you know, the decision maker does what they're going to do. Um, but I think having that organization that provides that, you know, partnership with all these government customers, and honestly, the the, the civil sector and the commercial sector, um, all of them look to us as, 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 and they know that we bring that value because we see all these individual stovepipes from the bigger enterprise perspective. Um, so, kind of with that, right? Understanding how the United States, writ large, could maybe um, wield some of the activities more towards common purpose is something that really needs to be done. So. The U.S. government, right, has insane flexibility in being able to um, maybe take risk. Honestly, um, we don't usually think about U.S. government at risk no. together. <laughs> risk averse, uh, but they usually. really could, right? Potentially take way on way more risk than maybe the private sector would, um, and in certain areas. And so we should leverage that. Um, and, and the commercial sector obviously finds that very amenable because government money is stable. It helps them get over some of the S-curve humps. There's a lot of opportunities for, for, for those you know, two groups to work together. Also, the Wall Streets of the world, the Silicon Valleys of the world, and the DC counterparts of the world they all need to be working together. They all need each other for various reasons, right? You need the money, you need the legal constructs and the guidance and you and you, and you need the actual technology developments. And a lot of them think they don't need each other, but to be honest, like we could all be making a lot more progress the more we talk to each other. So, one of the things that I'd like to be seeing a lot more and we're starting to see some of it is much broader engagement, almost like recurring roundtables where people can just talk and flesh out ideas. I think one of the things that's missing on the government side is that we're just not, quite frankly, not a very sophisticated consumer. We need to be much more articulated in what we need, and part of that has to do with conversation about what is the art of possible, because um, they don't know what they need. And and the commercial sector needs a little bit of guidance on well, what is of utility to the government, and so that can't happen in a single RFP or a pitch day. Right? That has to happen in a conversation, an ongoing conversation, in a relationship. And I don't see many of those things happening.
2: I hate to overemphasize on space. I know you're looking at all these different areas, but I think it's- Oh,
0: please do. Space is the coolest it, thing ever. <laughs>
2: it's a very important point for us is that we started out with the US government having a monopoly on space. Um, And now, with organizations like SpaceX um, and being able to launch CubeSats and things like that, is the government and the military still the leader in space? Or have we kind of ceded that leadership to the private sector?
0: So leadership can mean a lot of different things. Um, So this is kind of a an interesting question, right? Does our space program look like it did in the 1960s or the 1990s? Absolutely not. Things are changing. And I think they're changing for the better. And I'm really excited about it. The commercial sector is really stepping up and doing some awesome things. A lot has to do with just some of the technology developments, as well as some of the economics. And it's a big science experiment, no pun intended, right now. Uh, We don't know what actually is going to be sustainable or hit. There's going to be some winners. There's going to be some losers. But there's a lot of exciting opportunity. And I think the government really needs to step up its leadership in anticipating what kinds of regulatory or norms of behavior need to be established. How do we make sure these commercial companies are successful? How do we build infrastructure? God, there's not enough infrastructure discussions. You know, for sustained human presence, there needs to be a vision and infrastructure. No private company is going to fund that on their own. The roads, the waterways, you know, we have great examples on Earth, terrestrially. Um, I think that really needs to be thought through, and and I do think there's an urgency in figuring it out. I think there's a time window, um, you know, if for those of you that kind of understand the history of space, right? There's a seven-year wave, and uh, we're I, I believe we're kind of at the peak of it. Things might shake out here in a couple years, and um, that could lead us down. You know, a potential path, or maybe another, you know, ice age era, and then we pick back up here in 20 years. I certainly hope not, uh, because I have to say it's very exciting to be kind of in all of this development and disruption, and I, I hope to continue to see it. But I think we're going to need leadership at all aspects across the enterprise to really ensure that this is sustained growth, that this is growth um, promoting the kinds of environments that we want to see in space and beyond, you know, in geo and beyond. <laughs>
2: You're a lead futurist. You're working in this space just like we have. You're talking to future engineers and futurists right now. They're going to be in high school, middle school, elementary school right now. What what advice would you want to give them? Why would they want to work in this field?
0: Oh, man, I got lots of advice, unsolicited (laughs) advice. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, this is your future. And it's not your future tomorrow. It's yours today. So even though um, a lot of you know, younger generations feel like they have to wait to grow up and get a degree to go make change happen, that's not true at all, right? There's plenty of examples of our youth making huge changes today. Um, there are many, many CubeSat programs that are built by grade school students. So you can get involved today. Don't let that stop you. And actually, I would argue, you guys are at the peak of your creativity. We need to be utilizing that. You are a valuable asset um, to creating and innovating in this country and in this world. So keep at it. Keep giving ideas. Don't don't let those thoughts hold you back. There are ways to to do that. And there's a great quote that Paul Sappho kind of shared with me when I was at Singularity University a couple years ago. And he mentioned, planting a seed for a tree that's going to provide shade to someone that you're never going to meet. And I really like that quote because, um, to be honest, and this isn't applicable to everybody, but many individuals um, that are in the space industry now are getting ready to retire. It's a fact, right? Demographics are changing. And many of them just want to hang on to the status quo for the next couple of years. They don't want to rock the boat. Um, but I'm looking out ahead, and I'm going, they're making determinations for the opportunities that the next generation is going to have. I want to make sure that those opportunities are maximized uh, for the next generation. And so that's why I'm pushing so hard where I am. I've spent a lot of my career, again, following where the interesting problems are. I've always looked for the intellectual adventure. And I really encourage everybody to be doing that. <laughs> Young, old, <laughs> you know, new to space, not new to space. I think the world is changing so rapidly. And to be honest, I don't even know if degree programs are going to matter in 20 years. Um, I, I I don't even know if engineering is going to be as valuable as it is today, or they are, you, know, you need to round out your capabilities. There might be, you know, I think it's something like, most of the jobs that are going to exist in 10 years don't exist today, so how do you build skill sets for that? You know, Degree programs aren't the only way. Um, but I will say, I think one key attribute for success is to stay hungry and stay curious, and be flexible, and find a problem you really enjoy solving, or a set of problems, and just go do it don't worry about the degree program, don't worry about this you know, plotting your perfect career path, because I guarantee you most successful people, if you ask them, they did not expect to end up where they did, especially if you want to have a, a, a valuable and happy experience along your career path, you should be doing what you love. So that's, that's my advice. <laughs> well, thank,
2: thank you for that. And, you know, we're, I'm going to transition kind of to what we call rapid-fire questions, but there's really just questions that we ask each of our guests. So what technology or trend keeps you up at night?
0: Well, I'm a new mom, so I'm up a lot. <laughs> I think the, the one thing that really, really bothers me is just the way in which the way we are being fed information has literally changed the way we think. Marshall McLuhan has a great book called The Media is the Message from quite a while ago. He was ahead of his time, and it still rings true today. Um, but it really worries me. And on top of it, I think we have decision makers who really don't understand the technologies and the convergence that's happening. And so they can't adequately prepare and provide anticipatory policy making, which is hurting us even more. So, I worry about the critical thinking or lack thereof that is happening in our societies. And it's one thing that I am sure going to teach, you know, my daughter as we move forward is like that skill set is needed. You know, democracies aren't very successful if your population doesn't know how to think for themselves. I also have another one. I'm feeling kind of just through all of the different futures work that we've been doing on a variety of different problem sets, this looming question about what does it mean to be human coupled with this question of developing a machine you know artificial intelligence basis and is that human and what is that value and we 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 see a lot of this um you know looking out into space exploration because space exploration really is at the heart of what does it mean to be human is it being explorers? What is you know? Why are we here? Why are we existing? If we're creating other things, why do they exist? Um, and I just feel like we're we're not having real conversations about it yet. All these companies are building and developing algorithms. Um, the biotech companies are you know moving forward um, using CRISPR without a lot of oversight, and I and I don't mean regulatory oversight. I mean like ethical oversight and discussion with the broader community about like, well, I'm human. Don't I have a say in how the human race evolves? Um, so that's something, honestly, that's, I, I guess I don't sleep that much. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Too many things and they're already up. Um, so what is something that you're willing to share on air uh, about you that most people might not know?
0: Okay. So this one's fun. Um, So I actually, when I was an undergraduate um, engineering ambassador at Purdue University, uh, gave Neil Armstrong himself a tour of his own building. That was Neil Armstrong, in which my graduate program's office was there. So it was really cool. I was like, here, Neil, here's your building. It was a surreal experience. I'll never forget it. It was really cool. So
2: what is your favorite movie?
0: Okay. I've got two. But if I just had one, it'll be my first one. The Fifth Element, hands down. Really? Yes. My dog's name is Lulu. I mean, what's not to like? You got Bruce Willis, you got Vila and you got Chris Tucker. It's classic, it's imaginative, it's sly, it's, it's just an adventure. And there was nothing like it at the time. No, that's
2: true. And um, so this inspired you to be a futurist, right? Yeah, I mean, I
0: just, I just love that movie. Oh my goodness, yes, great cult classic. Okay, and this one, you know, maybe folks may may not agree. So I love the old Blaine Runner, don't get me wrong. But I actually really loved the new one, the 2049 one. A lot of people didn't like it. I thought it was so good. Um, The director just slayed it. It was dark. It was relevant to today. I think it was really deep. All the different layers of all the kind of, you know, techno-socio, issues that we're seeing today just kind of perverted and projected out in the future and it really got you thinking and it just got under your skin i felt i, I just i couldn't I'm, stop i'm watching sensing it. a
2: theme here
0: yes yes so i also a great movie strongly recommend you guys watch it
2: you know this has been such a great conversation what what else would you like to tell our audience is there anything else you'd like to tell them?
0: Well, I think just kind of in in summary, there are are better ways than just being reactionary. There are real tools and methods out there that can help us kind of think through the art of the possible and can help us dream, right? You can't really get to the place without dreaming it up. Um, And so I think we need to make room in all of our programs, even in our daily life at home, to think about, what do we really want? What is our preferred future? And then we can work back from there and how we get there. But there are better ways than just this reactionary approach that I feel like we've been kind of getting in the routine of.
2: And where can people follow you at?
0: Yeah, so um, you can email me at futures at aero.org. You can follow the Center for Space Policy and Strategy on all of your favorite social networks. Um, And then, of course, go to Aerospace's website.
2: All right. Thank you so much, Kara.
1: really appreciate you joining us.
0: Yeah, this is awesome. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Kara Koonsman, Lead Futurist for Strategic Foresight for the Center for Space Policy and Strategy at the Aerospace Corporation. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to the blog, the Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.